Hello, Great Minds. It's Tuesday, and that means it's time for Drinks with Great Minds in History as we chase the Christina episode with a bit of church wine. So welcome to the show, everyone. I'm your host, Zach Tobacco, otherwise known as Mr. DGMH. I'm going to keep this round of The Chaser very short, as I am heading to Italy in just a few days, which is why I wanted to cover something Italian-esque in this episode. And that really wasn't a hard leap to make from Christina of Sweden, patroness of Rome. And if you don't understand that connection, I suggest you go back and listen to the episode I did on Christina of Sweden. So I figured that I would cover something that I just didn't have time to go into in the Christina episode. I mean, that is the point of the chaser. So today we will cover popes. That is, the popes that Christina had to work with while in her Roman exile. But before we get to that, let's talk drinks. Not going to lie, I just grabbed the cheapest bottle of Italian red wine that I could find at Total Wine. Because what is more fitting to describe the wine that is used by the Catholic Church? Maybe I should go get some stale bread to go along with it. Joking aside, the wine I bought was $8 at Total Wine, and it's a Chianti called Ruffino. And for as cheap as it is, it really isn't that bad. So for the first time, I fully intend to keep this one quick, like chasers were intended to be. So here's hoping that I don't fall down any deep beaver holes, which of course is unlikely to happen. Today I figured we'd follow a pretty simple formula. Look at a pope, figure out what he did, and finally, as it is the chaser to Christina of Sweden, we will discuss how she interacted with each. Again, gonna try to avoid tangents in this one, but we'll see how it goes. And it might go pretty well. As one thing I learned is that the popes of Christina's day talked a lot, but didn't really do shit. Not that I'm surprised, both the spiritual and political influence of the papacy had been greatly diminished in 1648, and it had honestly been weakening long before that, courtesy of the Protestant Reformation. Well, let's get to it. Our first examination of the papacy. How bad could it be? Here's hoping I don't accidentally commit a sin. But first, it's some history for you, a reason to drink for me. It's the history of the great minds that made history come to be. Now, I figured that we better give a quick description of the papacy as well as its nature and power in Christina's world, that is the later half of the 17th century. Like I said, 1648, that cliche date that all international politics classes like to hit on as the grand moment when Cuis Regio Eus Religio was finally affirmed, where the princes of the realm would begin to see reason as something more motivating than their faith, at least when making political decisions on things like war and policy and taxation. Historians and political scientists alike enjoy pretending that this moment in question, the signing of the Peace of Westphalia, was like an atom bomb going off, a big bang that created a new universe, a new world in which no one cared about religion anymore, and the political leaders of Europe all became magically overnight politiques. Well, that's total bullshit. First off, pretty much every war involving Spain or France was about religion in some way in this period. Religion was all over the reins of the later Stuarts and Bourbons. The Secret Treaty of Dover was signed in the 1660s. The Glorious Revolution was in 1688. The Jacobite uprisings were all in the 18th century. The Spanish Inquisition waged on until the days of Napoleon Bonaparte and after. Hell, the Salem Witch Trials happened in the decade after Christina's death in 1689. My point, religion still mattered. Superstition may have no longer ruled primary, But it still made king and commoner alike do some really crazy fucked up stuff. But the Pope, he really seemed to matter less and less, even to Catholics. 
but nearly 1.3 to 1.4 billion. That is the number of Catholics in the world today. But let's pretend that a third of those are a little more than just Christmas and Easter Catholics, and then cut that by another third for those who really don't pay attention to Il Papa unless they're on a trip to Rome. You're still left with 500 million loyal subjects of the Holy See, waiting with bated breath to steadfastly follow the word of their Pope. That is influence. I always show my students the same political cartoon each year. It's one of the Pope in Rome on the telephone, his hand on a map of the United States, as he calls both Democrats and Republicans alike to seemingly rally behind a Catholic candidate for president. Ludicrous, I'm sure, but the United States did not elect a Catholic president until 1960 with JFK. Xenophobia was, well, is, so deeply rooted in the bedrock of this nation that its population legitimately doubted whether a Catholic president would serve his people or his pope first. Religion is a force, a force of good, guidance, and sometimes even hate. It has been the root of a lot of good and change in the world, but it has also brought about a lot of bad. And look at that, we basically started with a tangent. Splendid. But who were Christina's popes? Up first is Fabio Chigi and the papacy of Alexander VII. Now for us, this is the pope that welcomed Christina to Rome and truly enjoyed her, oh, let's say, style. His papacy actually began the year of her conversion, and he was the one that celebrated her entry into Rome. As a pope, well, he did a lot of, you know, pope things that bore me. I don't really plan to get into the doctrine or beliefs here today, just the big stuff. Like Christina, he disliked the business of state and preferred literature, philosophy, and art. He spoke out heavily against nepotism, but in the end embraced the age-old spoil system, placing his brothers and nephews in high positions of power. It was for this, towards the end of Alexander's life, that Christina wrote the following to her beloved Azzolino, quote, Don't you think it's pitiful to see so many millions from the church treasury used for luxuries for absolute nobodies who turn up to suck the blood and sweat of the poor? For this private gobbling of public money, these popes have ruined church and state. Ironically, and somewhat hypocritically, Christina's exile was dependent on similar papal favor and charity. It was also during his papacy that Christina, always with papal support, attempted to get various foreign crowns. He died at age 66 from kidney stones. Toward the end, he kept his coffin in his bedroom next to a skull carved by Bernini. After Alexander VII's death, we get our first of two very different Clements. First up, Clement IX. Born Giulio Rospigliosi, here's what Veronica Buckley had to say about this pope. The pontificate of Clement IX was a golden time for Christina and Azzolino. The Pope was her friend, and as eager as she was to see a flourishing artistic life in the city. His outlook was liberal and his modest purse always open. His short papacy lasted little over a year, but in that year he patroned several Bernini pieces, including the angels on the Ponte Sant'Angelo. It is said that he died of a stroke in 1669, after suffering for some time from severe kidney stones. Up next is actually our next Clement, Emilio Bonaventura Altieri, or Clement the, oh come on, you got this, the 10th, yes, Clement the 10th, was not as loving a fan of Christina. Buckley notes, quote, the six years of his reign were quiet years for the queen. So what did he do? Well, not much, but he was certainly more conservative than his open-minded predecessors. He appointed the first bishop of Quebec, Francois de Laval, who is considered the father of the Canadian church and who I can feel pulling me off topic. So I will leave it with this. Laval, like Clement X, spent a lot of time fending off the state and defending the powers of the church during the reign of Louis XIV. By the way, Pope Francis actually made Laval into a saint in 2014. I fell down, and I did fall down a bit of a beaver hole here, but I'm not going to talk about it today. Christina's final pope was the not-so-innocent Pope Innocent XI, born Benedito Odescalchi. 
He is the one who closed down theaters, even banned women from learning music as much as possible, once saying, quote, Music is completely injurious to the modesty that is proper for the female sex, because they become distracted from the matters and occupations most proper for them. Furthermore, one of his earliest actions was to revoke Christina's papal pension, and even tried to stop her well-known parties. Christina, of course, was not amused. This is when she outright went against the Pope, declaring herself protector of the Jews. But he died just months after Christina from, you guessed it, kidney stones. But it was Pope Innocent that had her buried in total splendor befitting a queen. Unsurprisingly, all this Pope talk led me down a beaver hole or two, so I figured we would wrap up this episode with another piece of Roman history that will just make me sound smarter than everyone else in the room on my upcoming trip to the Eternal City. That is, the Vatican Grotos, our Swedish queen's resting place. <laughs> So the Vatican Grotos, if you don't know what they are, they're basically the crypt in St. Peter's Basilica. Not the necropolis where St. Peter's tomb is, but in the same general area, and just a pretty resting place for a handful of popes and princes. Before we talk about who's buried there, let's note who isn't. Specifically, all four of the popes we discussed today are not buried in the Vatican Grotos, and most of them seem to die of kidney stones. Odd coincidence? I think so, yeah. Plus, one of our four actually died of gout. Alexander VII is buried in St. Peter's, in a most ornate and beautiful tomb designed by Bernini himself. Clement IX is buried in a tomb commissioned by his successor in Santa Maria Maggiore, a Roman church Clement X sought to revitalize. Clement X is in St. Peter's, not far from Alexander VII, I'm sure. And then there's Innocent XI, who was buried in St. Peter's in another beautiful monument sculpted by Pierre Monod, but he was actually moved to a new location to literally make room for the late Pope John Paul II. So that is a lot on people who aren't buried in our little side subject for today, but who is? Well, obviously, Christina of Sweden, as that is how we ended up here in the first place. But she is actually unique in this. Surprising, I know. As she is but one of several, well, six women buried in the Vatican Grotos. Since we've already covered Christina, let's take a quick look at some of the others. First, there's Matilda of Canossa, the first woman to be buried in St. Peter's. She was an epically badass countess who lived in the 11th and 12th centuries. A monument of her was designed by Bernini himself in 1633, commissioned by the Pope. Honestly, there might be more out there on her than there is on Christina of Sweden. She is called La Grande Contessa. She warred with kings and emperors, manipulated the political landscape of, Tux uh, of, Tuscany, of Tuscany and beyond and is considered one of medieval Europe's most influential women. She is even responsible for brokering the settlement of the investiture controversy. During the Counter-Reformation, she became somewhat of a mythical figure and symbol of staunch Catholicism. It was during this time that Pope Urban VIII had her body transferred to St. Peter's. The next woman I want to discuss that is buried in the Grotos was Maria Clementina Sobiska, the Polish wife of James Francis Edward Stuart the Jacobite pretender who lived in Rome during the 18th century. She is also the mother of the famous failure Bonnie Prince Charlie. In fact, all Stuart pretenders, King James II, James Francis Edward Stuart, Bonnie Prince Charlie, and Cardinal Henry Stuart are all buried alongside her in the Stuart tomb in the Grotos. The remaining three women buried there are Saint Petronilla, who is the patron saint of an odd number of French things, as well as the one you call out to when you have a nasty fever. She may have even been healed by Saint Peter himself. Then there's Queen Charlotte of Cyprus, another interesting story that we just don't have time for today, and finally, Agnesina Colonna Caetani, a noblewoman whose reason for being there I just can't for the life of me figure out. On that note, I am off to Florence and Rome. I will try to encounter as much of this history as possible between all the pasta, gelato, and booze that I plan to seek out on my one and a half days in Rome. Quick announcement though, there won't be a psych episode for Christina right away as a result of Sherry and Mine's summer travels. We will get it to you sometime soon, just not right now. And we will be back next week for a round of Shots Heard Round the World, and maybe a quick birthday special in early August. After that, for, well, you know, 
Me. Well, that's it. If you enjoyed this episode of Drinks with Great Minds in History, then please consider leaving the show a great, hopefully, five-star review wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at DGMH History, and be sure to join in the conversation on the DGMH Facebook group. Plenty of fun chats had there, and it kind of operates as the show's, I guess, blog, if we want to call it that. If you're all caught up and looking for even more DGMH or just love the show and want to help us out, then we hope you'll consider supporting the show over on the DGMH Patreon page. There, listeners can get access to even more great content, including bonus psych and shots conversations, pregame chats, extra moments with Mr. DGMH, Cullen Chats China, where Cullen chats with me about China's rich history that I know next to nothing about, and now Pete Chats Portugal, where Cullen and I continue our chats, but now on the rich, forgotten, often ignored history of Portugal. And coming next month, another moment with Mr. DGMH on the Thirty Years' War. So today we raise a glass of cheap red wine. Why? Because I never met a Catholic priest that didn't enjoy it. Religious or no, at least booze always seems to be some common ground between man and Pope alike. So salute and cheers to popes, saints, martyrs, pretenders, and queens. As we wrap up, I would like to say chin-chin to a very special saint today, St. Christopher, the patron saint of travel and long journeys, in hopes of safe travels during my upcoming visit to Florence and Rome. So, as they say at the place that is most of America's favorite Italian restaurant, next stop, Italy. Cheers!